Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 525 of the podcast. It is Sunday the 3rd of January 2021 as I record this. So I hope you had a happy new year and have had time to think about your creative and business goals. What will you create in the year ahead? And (laughs) I know I was saying to Jonathan this morning, it's a kind of a shame that everything wasn't wrapped up by the end of 2020 in terms of the pandemic, but it is not. (laughs) So we just have to carry on. And although that feels weird because it would be lovely to just move on, we can't. So I'm trying to be okay with that and just continue to live this quiet insular life because of course we're pretty much back in lockdown here in the UK and uh, you know just focus on creating and walking and all the things we've all been doing for hopefully not too much longer but certainly some time longer. I did see a snowdrop on my walk the other day and some of the sort of beginning of the daffodil bulbs coming up so that's signs of spring that's always quite hopeful. In today's show, I'm talking to Dr. Ewan Lawson about how to be a healthy writer in 2021. So we co-wrote The Healthy Writer together a few years back, and it's definitely an evergreen book in terms of mental and physical health practices for writers. And we revisit some of the specific tips as it relates to these pandemic times. Of course, if you want all the info, you can get The Healthy Writer in ebook, print and audiobook editions on all the usual stores or directly from me at payhip.com forward slash the creative pen. So in publishing news this week, I'm going to do a bit of a roundup of some of the news and predictions on the various writing and publishing sites that are out so far. And there'll probably be some more out by next week. But (laughs) just to start with some of them and also some of my own thoughts, I guess. So first of all, continued expansion to the global digital mobile business model, including more subscription options for ebooks and audiobooks. So the pandemic has accelerated adoption of digital consumption, and there are more readers than ever shopping online for books in all formats. There are also more subscription options and this will likely expand in the English language market in 2021 as well as the continued march into other language markets which are not actually hampered by the credit or purchase model for audiobooks in particular. This is what we're seeing is that because the English language market is a more mature market, it's been around longer, we have a model that is just not even being used in these other markets. They've gone straight to subscription. Now, I talked about this after the Future Book Conference, and I covered this specifically in episode 520, my solo show on uh, voice and subscription. So I won't get get into too much detail. You can go and listen to 520 uh, Uh, from a couple of weeks ago, if you like. So questions for this year. Will Spotify make a play for audiobooks? Will Storytel enter the US or the UK market? Will Hash Audiblegate be resolved? And will the resolution mean that Audible will shift into the subscription model as they have launched in Spain? That's actually my thought is that Audiblegate will be resolved and there will be some kind of resolution, but the resolution will mean that they are able to just move everyone into the subscription model. So things are definitely going to change in 2021 for subscription. 
And so I think the main question for you guys as we look at this continued expansion to global digital mobile is, are your books available in at least ebook and print-on-demand paperback in every country you can be available, at least in English or the primary language that you speak or write? Are you making the most of your intellectual property rights? I say this, this is like the first question I say to people is, you know, and even if you want to be exclusive with one uh, vendor, there is only really one vendor that does exclusivity. <laughs> but if you want to do exclusivity with one format, you can still be wide with other formats. So I'll use the example of Mark Dawson, who is exclusive with KU with most of his ebooks, I think still, but is wide with print. He has print publisher, also does different print uh, things around the world. You don't have to be exclusive with all formats or basically you can think about it in that way. So I hope that you'll consider each of your books and each of the formats and think about where else you could be available. Because of course, if you're not available somewhere and someone hears about your book or there's a link to your book or whatever, then they can't buy it. <laughs> That's like fundamentally 101. If your book is not there, someone can't buy it. And when we say there now, we're talking about all the online catalogues and all of that. Uh, also, interestingly, in terms of audio, Google Play is introducing AI narration in early 2021 of books for with AI voices with no audio format already available. And also authors who own and control their own IP can take advantage of selling audio direct as I am doing with BookFunnel for audio. So yes, if you buy one of my audio books now at payhip.com forward slash the creative pen, you, they, it will be delivered through the BookFunnel app. So I talked about this uh, last week or the week before, whenever. I've just totally lost track of time. <laughs> but if you have signed a traditional publishing deal, it is worth looking at your contract, especially if you signed it a few years back when they weren't so draconian with taking all rights, all formats, all territories, all of that. Then have a look at what you've actually licensed and what you could license in the year ahead. So exciting times indeed. And I know I always say exciting times ahead, but I truly think that the world, even though there are dark moments and difficult times and horrible things happening in some places, the world is still relentlessly marching forward. And a lot of that is positive. If you've seen any of Hans Rosling's work and Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature, there is evidence for positivity and growth and wonderful things in the world. It's just that the news cycle is relentlessly focused on the negative. So I actually one of my, I don't do resolutions, you know, I do goals, which I've just shared, but one of my things I'm going to do, practices, habits this year, is read less news and read more books. So instead of reaching for my phone in the morning to check the news, I'm going to reach for one of the many books I have to read this year. And so that is something I want to focus on. I hope you will also avoid the news as much as possible. <laughs> So back into the subscription, I want to mention Mark Coker from Smashwords, who has a 2021 prediction post, which is, as ever, thought-provoking. Mark does one every year. He says, subscription consumption grows, single copy sales fall, and subscription services 
drive devaluation. And I agree with this. And I think the value, value in inverted commas, of digital will continue to drop. And this is inevitable. This is one of those things that happens with, with digital. But my answer to this is, as ever, doubling down on being human, is use the subscription services to get your work into the hands of readers. Then make sure you develop these direct sales relationships so you can earn a premium from those readers who truly love your work and value your creativity. This can be through email lists, through your email lists and direct sales, through Patreon and Kickstarter and other crowdfunding, and also offering more value-add products, experiences and services. And look, to be honest, this is what the music industry is doing and those musicians who are still making money are not the ones... There's, there's a very, very tiny number of musicians who make tonnes of money from something like Spotify. But most musicians have these multiple streams of income as well. And even without doing live things, many musicians have their email lists. They, they do all of this. So I, I've actually been looking a lot more at the music industry recently because of Spotify. And it's a bit like Amazon, really, in terms of the power, I guess, of, of music. So you have to think about, well, okay, so I'm going to take advantage of these big sites, these big players, but I'm also going to build my thousand true fans or my hundred true fans or whatever I can build in my corner over here. And that I know I can make a living with those those people supporting me. And then those big players act as a funnel almost. They bring people to you and some of them are going to stick around for the long term. And it's certainly not get rich quick, <laughs> but it is a long term creative business model that works. And I know it works because it's the one I use myself. So what else for 2021? Well, of course, we've got the Penguin Random House acquisition of Simon & Schuster, which is likely to, I don't know if it'll take all year, but it will certainly take a good few months to go through. There are still some uh, barriers to that consolidation and also the adoption of a more digital model for publishers. So what we've I reported again from the future book that publishers are moving. So what they've discovered digital first in the pandemic, things that we've been doing for a decade, they are now discovering. So what we're going to see this year is we're going to see more editors, more book marketers, more traditionally published authors all moving into the indie space because when there is a merger of big publishers, a lot of people get laid off and a lot of authors will also get orphaned. And so let us welcome our friends from all the different publishing areas. And every time you think that, every time I think that everyone knows what we know, I discover that I'm wrong. And there are people arriving in the indie space every week who have wonderful books and just don't know how to do their marketing, or they are professional editors or cover designers. And so we have this expanding, expanding thing. And as I always say, writing is a self-sustaining industry. Authors are a self-sustaining industry. We should always welcome more authors into the mix because we can never write as many books as we can read. And every single person who decides to write a book will buy far more books than they will ever read. And they are another valued member of our community. So I want you to have this expansive feeling about more people coming into the mix because it brings more energy, more ideas. It brings more people to network with. It means more book sales. So all of these things, I, I think it's very positive. And it will be interesting. The only thing that's possibly not positive, <laughs> but I think this is traditional publishing. I think we're going to find that 
the paid ads are going to get more and more expensive. So this is interesting because J.D. Barker, Jay Thorne and Zach Bahannon discussed the state of the industry in their Writers Inc. podcast episode 59 last week, which was interesting. And they, uh, in fact, Jay Thorne said he thinks it's the end of pay-per-click ads this year, but I don't think so at all. I actually think this may be the biggest year ever of pay-per-click ads because I think Uh, Traditional publishers are going to get into it in a big way. I think a whole load more authors are going to get into it. And let's face it, it is already crowded. So I I think what you're going to have is that it will get more and more expensive. And then maybe I think the peak, <laughs> the peak might be next year or the year after, but we're certainly, I don't think, anywhere near the end of pay-per-click ads. I do think that there may be a model of more options where people can pay to remove ads. So that, to me, is the backlash that I think is coming. And I have read a few things. So, for example, there's an email, hey, the hey email. And I've been thinking about this. So basically, you pay for email usage. And so many of us have been used to free email for a long time that having paid email services seems like, oh, okay. But if you start, if you say, okay, I'm going to pay, or people who pay for YouTube, Red, I think, whatever it is, the premium YouTube, so there's no ads, that people who now pay to get a premium edition of something without advertising. So I pay for newspapers, for example, on my phone apps and that type of thing. So what if you could pay for an ad-free Amazon experience? How many people would pay for that? That is an interesting possibility. And I think that's more likely. So for example, you can't reach me, Joanna Penn, with a Facebook ad because I don't use Facebook myself. (laughs) I just don't use it. I do use it for advertising and I do put, like, well, I say I don't use it. I occasionally log on and do comments, but that's about it. So you can't reach someone like me with that because I'm not even there. So that might be, I guess, what Jay is more talking about is that people will just be moving off these platforms. And I've certainly seen that discussed, you know, the sort of end of social media. But I think what that means is more pivoting of social media into other other things. The other interesting thing that Mark Coker says is he says consolidation is coming to indie publishing as well. He says, the self-publishing market is overcrowded with too many companies fighting for too few dollars. For the same reasons the big New York publishers are consolidating, consolidation is inevitable for self-publishing as well. Does the world really need hundreds of ebook distributors? The answer is no. In fact, the plethora of these companies doing the same thing is confusing and counterproductive for most authors. Now, this this is interesting to me because my in my head it brought up the question, does that mean Smashwords is looking to sell or is Smashwords looking to buy? Because Mark Coker, obviously CEO of Smashwords, that that's what it brings up in my head. So that is really interesting. And of course, Smashwords is the uh, oldest of all the distributors, has been around for what, 13 years, I think now. Mark has been there and has always advocated for wide publishing and always talks about all these different things. And so, yeah, this is interesting. This is not something I had thought about, but he's right. There are way too many companies trying to do the same thing. So we shall see what happens with that. 
Just on the pay-per-click ads, I mean, obviously I do use ads for marketing, but I have more been a fan of content marketing. And in fact, 95% of my marketing for over a decade has been content marketing. This podcast, my blog, which I don't really blog anymore, but um, my books and travel show are content marketing. And this one is now part of my multiple streams of income as well. And that's, I think, one of the wonderful things about content marketing. It can also bring income, whereas ads, you pay once, you get a sale. That's kind of it. But you need to bring people into your ecosystem, into your uh, email list, that kind of thing. But audio forms of marketing are going to continue to expand in 2021. More publishers will get into podcasts. More authors will have contracts that include podcasts as well as it. I mean, I can see... The publishing contract, which I've heard is now including things like podcasting, will say things like all audio and video experiences or however they'll phrase it. But it won't just be all formats for book. It will be sort of all of these subsidiary things. So definitely watch out for that in your contracts. But Amazon Music launched podcasts in September 2020. You might even be listening to this on Amazon Music. And just a few days ago, on 30th of December 2020, Amazon bought Wondery, a podcast production company responsible for some of the big shows of the last few years, like Dirty John and Dr. Death, which they have also turned into other media, such as books and TV shows. Now, at a podcast movement in 2019, I heard the CEO of Wondery speak and it was great. He And he has this global perspective. He talked about releasing their shows in multiple languages everywhere at the same time. And this was seemed to be quite a first for the audio space and something publishers need to take note of now Amazon has bought them. So essentially, they produced that podcast. And these have a, a season and they're more like a TV show. They have a season and that's it. So what they can do is produce that season in English or Spanish or whatever, and then they can uh, translate it and produce it again and then release all at the same time. So as we know, in the indie world, we release our books globally at the same time, and all internet marketing is essentially global marketing. This podcast has been downloaded in 223 countries. And of course, if you self-publish your book on all platforms, your books are available in 190 countries. Most of uh, my books uh, are only available in English, but this kind of global, digital, audio, mobile-first, multimedia way of thinking is certainly more common amongst indie authors as we can take advantage of it, but we certainly going to see more of this. For example, <laughs> my millennial siblings and sister-in-law have told me that they don't really read text anymore. They listen to everything. And that's certainly the message coming out of places like Spotify. So interesting times indeed. Another, just a couple of other things, probably the other big thing on the horizon is the regulation or the potential breakup of some of the biggest tech companies. There are antitrust lawsuits for Facebook, Google and Amazon and the EU Digital Services Act and the Digital Marketing Markets Act are bringing in new rules over here this year. Although, of course, the UK is not in Europe anymore. Although I, in my heart, I'm European. <laughs> this is something I've been following in 2020 and discussed with Len Edgeley in episode 505. And David Gochran covers it in his end of the year newsletter, recommending that authors keep ramping up with email marketing because this is the very best thing anyone can do to protect themselves from whatever happens in the future. And I certainly agree with that. And of course, I have everything you need to set up your email marketing. I've got a tutorial if you go to thecreativepen.com forward slash author website, you can find that email tutorial. 
So uh, have a think about your author business. How much is dependent on the companies of Facebook, Google and Amazon and to some extent Apple. Apple's also in that firing line but Facebook, Google and Amazon are certainly separate higher up on the list. So how dependent are you on these companies? What happens if the rules change? Do you have multiple streams of income? Do you have an email list so you can sell direct to them and pivot into that uh, if you need to? And of course for all these things the same principles apply as ever. Keep writing and creating intellectual property assets that you own and control. License appropriately, retaining ownership and control unless it makes sense to license your rights. Develop multiple streams of income, build your email list and your relationship to readers directly. And remember that change is the only constant. But these things are what I focused on for over a decade and 2021 marks my 10 years as full-time author entrepreneur. So that will be in September 2021. 21, so I'm sure I'll do some kind of special show at that point. But and actually, ten year this year is quite big. Actually, it was 20, uh, 2011. <laughs> in 2011, I released my first novel, and in 2011, I also left my job as uh, an IT consultant. So yeah, it's a pretty big year, I guess. Decade, decade on. And one other thing I wanted to mention is there's an interesting interview on the self-publishing show uh, last week, episode 259. Now this is only for some authors, but it's about large print runs through Chinese fulfillment centres and printers and how this can be really effective if you want to do big print runs and do different kinds of distribution. This is definitely the kind of thing that you only do if you have a business plan for um, printed books, basically, and a distribution plan. This is not something I intend to do or want to do, but there are some authors for whom it is definitely the way to go. And it's not talked about much because it's a very uh, small niche, but it is very interesting. So self-publishing show episode 259. So thanks as ever for your emails and tweets and comments over the last few weeks. I'm not going to read any of them because there have been lots. And thanks for your comments on the goals show and the roundup of 2020 and for all the Patreon discussion and all of that. So I really appreciate it. I I know sometimes it feels like I'm just talking at you from from my little booth. (laughs) I'm standing here on my own in my little audio booth talking at you. But I also, I love getting emails. I love getting tweets and comments on the episodes. So thank you all for joining me in that way. So today's show is sponsored by Ingram Spark, who have enabled so many authors and publishers to continue making money in a global pandemic when physical bookstores have been shut. But with print on demand technology, we've been able to continue to sell books and those bookstores that rely on the catalogues, which we can get into with Ingram Spark. Thank you to Ingram Spark for being so awesome. And they are also expanding, clearly done well out of the pandemic, which is brilliant. So I've been using Ingram Spark for four years now to go wide with my print books. And as I mentioned before, uh, you can be wide with print even if you are exclusive with your ebooks. Remember, if you only offer print on demand through Amazon KDP Print, you will not be able to reach bookstores, libraries, universities and online stores like bookshop.org because you need to offer a discount and you need to be in those catalogues that those booksellers order from because booksellers make their money in the gap between the cost of the book and the sale price. So discounts are essential to the supply chain and IngramSpark enables you to offer discounts. So they distribute to over 40,000 partners 
partners across the world and have print partners in the US and Canada, UK and Europe, Australia and New Zealand. So I've had a few questions about this recently. If you're in the UK, don't worry about Brexit because Ingram Spark print in Europe for sales to Europe. <laughs> you can also get cheaper bulk purchases of your books, which many authors use to sell in bulk to schools or I've used them for speaking events, which hopefully we'll be back to doing post pandemic. I also love Ingram Spark as you can create print on demand hardback editions of your books, which are great for giveaways and for super fans, as well as looking lovely on your vanity shelf. And of course, we all have one of those. They have a podcast, Go Publish Yourself, which covers everything you need to know about publishing through Ingram Spark. They also offer free ISBNs if you don't want to purchase your own. Plus, they have free online courses to help you make the most of production and distribution, including how to increase your sales through book metadata. Because on Ingram Spark, you can actually enter loads of metadata for the book industry, which is interesting. They also have tips on book cover and interior design and marketing tips. So it's your content. Do more with it with Ingram Spark. Just go to ingramspark.com to get started. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my lovely patrons. Thanks to everyone who has been supporting the show for many years and months. And thanks to you new and returning patrons in the last few weeks. There are lots, so I'll just read the first names this week. Thanks to Aria, Steve, Elizabeth, Quickstep Travel Guides, Sarah, Mark, Dave, Becky, Drew, AM, Zach, Writers Inc., Hey guys, Amanda, Hetty, Polly and Masur. Thanks to everyone supporting the show in these crazy pandemic times. I really appreciate it. And you can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio where you can ask me anything. And I get quite personal with that one. And I really do answer pretty much anything. And there are notes and links. So it is extra value. And you get access to the backlist. So tons more audio. And uh, you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash a creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Ewan Lawson is a British medical doctor and a fellow of the Royal College of General Practitioners. He is currently the acting editor of the British Journal of General Practice, as well as an educator. He's the author of GP Wellbeing, Combating Burnout in General Practice, and the co-author with me of The Healthy Writer, Reduce Your Pain, Improve Your Health and Build a Writing Career for the Long Term. Welcome back to the show, Ewan. It is an absolute pleasure to be back, Johanna. Lovely to be here. Oh, yes. And you were last on the show at the end of 2017. So goodness, that's three years now. So give us an update on what's happening with you and your writing life. How have things changed? Gosh, it's funny looking back at three years. I don't quite know where they've gone. It's been it's been an odd it's obviously been an odd period in the past 12 months, and I'm sure we'll come on to that in a minute. I, for me personally, I guess what happened was the book got launched, The Healthy Writer, just at the start of, at the end of 2017, start of 2018, didn't it? Mm -hmm. And then it was, and that was really exciting, really pleased with it, really happy, planning to do lots more writing. And then I suppose the first thing that happened is, and this sounds terribly tragic, and I don't mean it to, is that my, in March, my wife got diagnosed with breast cancer. So that kind of just slightly tilted the direction of life a little bit for the rest of 2017, more or less. And certainly my writing got more or less shelved in terms of any big plans anyway of getting things done. Though I did actually start my podcast, Blocology, at the same time as that, more or less. So that, I think that ran all through 2017. So I just I sort of cracked on with that. And I, I, I might have been slightly therapeutic 
in terms of just pushing on with that side of things. But my writing certainly, it didn't have quite the focus I might have liked it. I thought it was going to have when we launched the book and we went out um, with that. And then in 2018, and sorry, 2019 rather, it's funny how when something like that happens, it does take a bit of recovering. And I was getting back into my writing. And what I would say is in terms of my writing life is I've never stopped writing. I was still generating, I was still generating lots of words, fiction, nonfiction, medicine, lots of different things. But what I lacked a little bit was the focus in terms of turning it into an end product. But I, I don't look back with that with a huge amount of regret. I think and it's something we talked about in The Healthy Writer as well, that writing in itself is therapeutic, even if it never goes out to anybody. But I also got very busy at work. And so my academic writing, which ironically was something I thought I was leaving behind, has perhaps um, my writing and my editing has expanded again a lot more than I expected. And then that takes us more or less up to the start of 2020, when clearly lots of other things have happened in the meantime. Yeah. And just tell us, is your wife okay now? Oh, yes, I should say. yeah, <laughs> She's absolutely fine in terms of it was she had a bit of surgery, a bit of radiotherapy. We didn't have to go through chemotherapy. So we we're very lucky. And I think the prognosis is very good. And like most cancer these days, although it's a terrible diagnosis to have and it has a great impact on people. Actually, the vast majority of it remains treatable, curable. You should get it. You can be treated and it should go away, never come back again. That certainly is a hope. I think that's where we are, where my wife is now. Yeah, that all looks very positive. Mm. And I think is obviously your family's been through a difficult time and you've got kids. You've got three kids, right, as well? Yeah, that's right. I have three teenagers now. So that's even since three years ago, I think they, they were all relatively sweet, just 10, 11 year olds. <laughs> They've now turned into these raging monsters of kind of hormones. And yeah, exactly. Just you know, so it's a very it's a very different household. But I mean, they're still good kids. And I have I think we're very fortunate in terms of how they how we interact with them in our family life. But mm. there, are, there are a few more moments of tension now, perhaps than there used to be. Yes. But I think this is even a really good lesson or learning for people straight away is that you had certain intentions around your writing life and then life happened, <laughs> your yeah. wife, your teenagers, and then obviously COVID. And this is really important is that we can't always control. Well, <laughs> most of the time we can't control what's going on. So we have to adapt. And if people, sometimes I hear from people, they feel guilty for not writing when they're going through something personal what you've been through or even just bringing up teenagers even if you didn't have um, the cancer and you didn't have a pandemic there's still a lot to be done so you know that's really interesting to hear but you're also just tell us a bit more so you learned about podcasting you learned about self-publishing certainly when we co-wrote together kicked you a little bit around relaxing your writing style and (laughs) definitely changed in that way so what are you doing now in terms of your job you're a bit more like a content marketing for doctors aren't you yeah, I mean, you could definitely make that case. So I, I still have an academic post at medical school, and that's got very busy over the past year or two. But um, one of the other roles I always had was as a medical editor of a an editor of a medical journal. And just in the past few months, I've taken on the, the sort of editor in chief role of that journal. And so it's a really interesting kind of slightly different kind of job to the ones you might expect in medicine or even academia, because yeah, you're very much, you, we have this content, these research papers, these kind of analysis articles. And then it's very much, as you say, it's about content marketing. We have to try to get, go out there, find our readership, got to engage them, try to create community. 
And um, we're always trying to create social media kind of interest and to add value to what we do. So there's incredible parallels. We have a podcast, so I host a podcast for that medical journal as well, where we talk about the research. It's been interesting that all that all that all those things we did in terms of and have done, and people still do in terms of independent indie publishing and self-publishing and all that entrepreneurial side. It's been a really it's been incredibly valuable for me. And I've taken it into that medical journal world. And I'm trying to use it as much as I can, because I think it is remarkable how few people know about some of the processes and the ways to go about this, I think, sort of the incredible creative processes that can happen and the way to get out and find your find your tribe. No, that's great to know. And I think sometimes people think, oh, it's only relevant in certain niches, but you're doing podcasting and social media and writing and things for the academic and medical community. So it's definitely the lessons we learn, as you say, are relevant in different industries. So we're going to get into some health stuff, but uh, we need to give a little disclaimer, don't we, first? Yeah, it's important for me to say that I'm obviously, I, I say I'm a doctor, but I'm, for everyone listening, I'm not your doctor. And anything I think we talk about, it's really important that we emphasize that we can't, you shouldn't regard it as medical advice specifically for yourself. And if you've got any concerns or you're thinking of making any changes, then do consult with your own healthcare professional, make sure you take advice, particularly it applies to everybody, but it's going to be even more important if you've got any other complex chronic conditions or anything else that could interfere as well. So do look at, do look after yourself, do the sensible thing and speak to your appropriate person. Brilliant. Okay, let's get into it then, because we're recording this in basically what is what the second week of December 2020. And here in the UK, we actually had the first person vaccinated yesterday from COVID. I love it that they're putting the really old people first in line. It was like this 90 year old woman. <laughs> but it yeah. feels like the year that there's been some crazy miraculous developments in terms of vaccines, and there's hope on the horizon. But obviously, we're not out of it. As we record this, we're not out of it yet. And it's going to when this goes out in January, we still won't be out of it. So the world has certainly changed and we're going to come back to physical health. But I want to start with mental health. What are some of the issues that people might have struggled with? Some of the common issues in order to normalize what is just inevitable in a year like this? Yeah, it has been 2020. It's certainly been quite the year, hasn't it? And um, Mm. incredibly intense for everybody. And I think there's the, the 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 common things remain common mental health problems and I think that's probably the most important thing to say that there's all this uncertainty and I, I I suspect people have had a slightly different experience as well lots of people have had different experiences some people have had a positive pandemic if you like and some people have had a terrible tragic devastating pandemic and it's all extremely unsettling and it's certainly not what we're it's not what we regard as normal life I think particularly problems like anxiety and depression will which have been there all along are the kind of problems that have been would if you already suffer from you'd be at very high risk of them having worsened if they were just there a little bit in the background all that uncertainty and difficulty could easily have made them that bitch much more difficult to cope with and to manage so I, i would always have anxiety and depression right up there as they're such common conditions so much of it throughout the population they aren't new and covid's a real magnifier in that regard i think a lot of us in on the medical side would regard COVID as just having magnified all of these kind of certainly inequalities it's very obvious that'll have been they've had an effect there as well but particularly any conditions that do exist they've just really amplified everything. 
And it's interesting because I'm I'm not someone who has ever sought a diagnosis of either anxiety or, or depression, but I've glimpsed this year myself what some people must suffer more regularly. And in that March period, that the acute fear, I would almost anxiety moves into fear and panic. And I'll confess to buying a few more toilet rolls than usual and paracetamol in case of fever and those types yeah. of things. I even got cash out the bank, which was useless in the end because everyone stopped taking cash. But certainly I feel like I had that a, a, acute sense of anxiety until we realized it was not the apocalypse. And then depression is really interesting too, because I'm a very upbeat person and normally I can just go to sleep and I wake up and it's better. But I've definitely had some real periods during the lockdown. So certainly this more November one, which has been so dark, of just feeling like really, what is the point? And it just feeling very negative about things, which has been a surprise for me. And I realized that I definitely need to get out more. <laughs> but it's yeah, so I wanted to be honest about some of the things I've felt. Is there anything that you've been through personally that you're happy to share as well? Yeah, I'm always happy to share. I have to say I have been fairly fortunate. I think I noticed some anxiety, particularly at times uh, early on. And I was almost, I, I would weirdly lie in bed at night and almost have this sense of slight panic overcoming me. And that I thought I was going to start having a panic attack on a couple of occasions. And that probably is the closest I've, that's the worst I've been in terms of anxiety. One of the advantages of my role is that we've just been, and I don't like to use the B word busy too much, is but the things have really lifted off a little bit. For on the medical side over the past um, year. So there's been quite a lot to occupy us. And that's a great help in terms of managing things, this kind of nature of this kind of problem. I, I think it's been really common depression, like low mood is one of the things that is off people often think about depression. But actually, one of the, uh, the other ways that people can be affected by depression, things like they just what's called they don't enjoy what they would normally enjoy doing. And the pandemic has been weird and it stopped people doing the normal things they would like to do but actually depression is more about even if you get a chance to do them you don't enjoy it anymore and that kind of negative approach is very common as well where you lose motivation that's very common if you start your mood starts to get a bit lower and it starts to tilt towards depression as well I would say that to some extent these are what you might from medically from the medical perspective we might regard more as just normal a normal process of adjustment they're, they're almost expected adjustment reactions to a very difficult set of circumstances. But they can easily, there's no kind of easy dividing line between something like that and a clinical diagnosis of depression or anxiety. So we're all to a certain extent going to experience some of them at some level. And the trick is to try to do things, of course, that help us manage those and help us tilt us back towards away from the kind of... The, I think when people are really depressed, it's just it's very it's like a hole that's extremely difficult to get out of. And it's almost by themselves, it's almost impossible to manage that. It's a very dark place. And but if we can do something, those people in those circumstances, clearly we want to as doctors, we want to see them, we want to try to help them, we want them to see their healthcare professionals. But if you're somebody who's maybe not quite at that, there's maybe still that possibility where you've got enough motivation, willingness, and enthusiasm still to try to do the right things. There are ways that we can tilt things in the right direction. The first thing I would ask is when you were feeling like that, Joanna, what kind of things did you do to feel a bit better? 
went on a really long walk. I went on my six day walk, which really helped. And that was more, I think the frustration as well. And the sort of, uh, I have a real thing about freedom and you need to get away sometimes. And I felt like I was being shut in this box. I'm in my house and we've been shut in our boxes for so long. And so I was almost like beating my head against the cage, like one of those animals who gets caged. And so obviously that wasn't during lockdown, but we were still in the sort of tears here in the UK. But that long walk really helped. And I walked myself into submission. That's what I wrote in my journal. And that helped me. And I would say that's what I've done all through the pandemic is I've walked almost every day, sometimes for an hour, sometimes four hours, five hours, nine, hours and exercise certainly I I know you do this too but exercise really helps even today it was getting really dark and we went downstairs and put all the lights on and had a dance just some music can change the mood and I've also bought one of those Lumi lights that that bring in more natural light for the dark periods so yeah nature and walking has really helped and I, I guess music and light what about you? Yeah, very similar. I think um, there's some good evidence that, you know, I can I don't always talk about evidence, but I, I love being out in nature as well. And being outside really is the, one of the things that makes me feel right about the world very quickly. Um, there's good evidence about nature, even now looking out, at, there's some fairly not fantastic studies, but even look at hospital rooms that look out at have, a, have a, a view of the countryside and have some therapeutic benefit. So I think that I would always go the nature side. I think the physically active for me is always top of the list. I think the important thing there, and I do a bit of running, so that's the uh, most, I've done more running in the past nine months than I've done in my whole life. But I think the interesting thing about that is that I'm still not over, overall, I think I'm, in terms of being physically active, I suspect I'm still only at the level I was at pre-pandemic. I've only just sort of kept on a level because we are stuck in the house a bit more, our houses a bit more, we're not getting out and doing things, not walking around visiting people or just in the office or wherever it is so actually I think I'm just on an even keel in terms of my overall physical activity but I've had to step up my kind of running kind of activity to, in order to make that work so that'd be the that's the main thing for me I think one of the things I've been aware of as well that I had some difficulty and perhaps this might be another slight effect on my mental health because the other thing that people if people do get a bit low or a bit unsettled then concentration can be a real problem and that's often why people who get a bit depressed feel that their memory's struggling. And it's not because of any particular problem with their memory, other than the fact that they've, they're, they're not as attentive and they're not concentrating as well. So you, don't, you never take things in retainer at the start in quite the same way. I haven't found reading as easy in the past nine months in many ways, which has been interesting. That There have been points where I've found it really difficult to sit down and concentrate on books in the ways that I have done for my whole life. But I have pushed mm. through that a little bit because I know how good it is for me. I know how important it is for me to get lost in books um, and to interact with nonfiction ones. And it sparks off my writing. So I've really made a big effort to keep on doing the things I love doing. Yeah, I've I have literally binged so many books. I am a real horror reader this pandemic, although no pandemic books at all. <laughs> Nothing about pandemic thrillers or anything. Haven't read those, but lots of horror. Also, I think story, like in getting into stories, I think Netflix really has come of age during the pandemic. And we've certainly watched quite a lot of of yeah. stories, which is interesting. But I did also want to ask about loneliness because that is, is something that's really come up. I've seen some reports on loneliness being even worse. And my mum is alone, lives alone. Mm -hmm. And 
she's not a particularly sociable person like me. She's an introvert, but she's had some real periods of of misery and having to give her hope that there is future for her and that once she can get out there in the world she's 74 and obviously there are more risks when you're an older person and she's just one person and loneliness is really difficult for many people I and at the beginning the sort of everyone was doing zoom and stuff but then I think zoom everyone got zoomed out really <laughs> and you stopped talking so much to people and we know we would when we did the healthy writer we found that loneliness was actually a real common issue with writers in general let alone in a pandemic so yeah yeah. Uh, what are some of the things that people can do there obviously we can't say go out and meet people right now (laughs) for me I think the perhaps the most important thing is to recognize and accept the fact that you're lonely it's probably one of those that it's if you can manage to do that's incredibly important we did write about this a bit in the healthy writer and I think it's so it's one of these emerging topics in the past decade and it, it, as we were saying earlier it's one of those things that's been massively amplified by COVID and brought it into really stark relief that people who are on their own and and actually just can't get out and see anybody at all I think we've all become much more acutely aware of that there's an easy there is an easy answer while we're in the middle of the pandemic I don't think but for me perhaps it would be about recognizing the fact that you could be lonely it's not a very easy thing to admit to oneself that's happened and about and in terms of that I've, I think I would say I've definitely even myself I've got a lovely family life with people at home I definitely have found myself at times thinking that I have neglected my friendships and have become lonely at points in my life even in the past 10 or 15 years just accepting that we are lonely is really important. Then the next thing is about trying to find your people, whether it's re-engaging with those that you've lost contact with, at friends, colleagues, family, or whether it's about finding your tribe, whether it's other writers and engaging with them online. And in many ways, I suppose writers, although there is, there will hopefully be emerging opportunities for conferences and other things in the very near future again, and there are some online options for that. Writing's always been a fundamentally slightly lonely business. I think we opened up you know, the chapter on this in The Healthy Writer with a quote from Isaac Asimov about writing being a lonely job. And so it's something that can really affect writers. And I think it's really important to be active in addressing it more than anything else. It's difficult to say one thing you should do, but actually just really trying to establish healthy social connections is really important. And it's easy to fall into a negative cycle with loneliness that you become lonely and then you push people away as a consequence of that as well and you become a, a little bit embittered or and you become more isolated and then that quickly becomes a vicious circle so if you're kind of falling into that it's about trying to get to a point where you can recognize that's what's happened to you and push back a little yeah absolutely and I've certainly been surprised we should say I'm very happy with my husband and like you said you're happy at home but even sometimes we're not used to spending this much time with the people in our house and sometimes it's I just want some other company (laughs) all of these things are allowed I think maybe that's it like you have permission to feel however you feel and it's then finding ways um, around that and certainly I'm looking forward to going to conferences I I wonder how long it will take before I wish I'm not going to conferences again (laughs) After we go back, doctors do the same, right? All these conferences. And and (laughs) academic as well. Being on the academic side, conferences are just... I've had some very bad experiences going to conferences. I I would be, (laughs) you know, where I felt very lonely indeed. And a very small part in thousands of people around and being very that kind of completely lonely in a crowd experience. 
I'm hoping there will be a bit of a, a more of a blend, perhaps. Some of the online conferences and online experiences I've had have been very positive and a chance to engage with people in a different way that I wouldn't have had a chance to do before. So I'm quite positive about that angle of it, but I would quite like a bit of a blend. We're inherently social creatures. We're highly social, pro-social animals, humans. It's our, perhaps our defining characteristic as a species more than anything else. We really need that engagement. And if you don't get it, it's bad for your health. And that has been a problem over the pandemic, but it's an issue that writers need to keep well and near the front of their mind at any time, I think. Yeah, so let's let's get into COVID-19 because obviously there's physical health and this is where the physical and mental health collide because for our mental health, we need to see people, but for our physical health, we can't. It's so close now, as we said, the, the vaccine's coming and, it, and we've been taking vitamin D. We've uh, both lost a bit of weight, trying to do things to reduce our chances of uh, a bad situation. Now, of course, there's lots of studies, but we're still very close to this. So do you have any comments or thoughts about reducing chances of a bad case of COVID or at least trying to prevent yeah, the worst things happening? Yeah, I think this would be, I have to be extremely careful here with the evidence because it's a bit of an evidence-free zone, a lot of this. We, we haven't got good studies for a tremendous amount of it. There was a lot of concern that in terms of how much your exposure was, whether it would result in a bad case. And I'm not sure we understand the factors that result in you getting particularly badly affected. It's really difficult to know. I, 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 although it's been, everybody knows them and they've been trumpeted. We've all heard them ad nauseum over the past few months. I, I would fall back on the, the old fashioned stuff that the best case of COVID is not a case of COVID at all. And especially as we're getting towards the point where vaccines, and I've had my antibodies checked a few weeks ago, and I've ne- I haven't had it, or at least I've got no antibodies. And I'm very aware now, I'm super, I've become even more super aware that you don't want to be the person that gets COVID just a few weeks before the vaccine comes. Yeah, me and too. Months, uh, become even more <laughs> acutely aware. And I do think hand washing is a big thing. And I know that sounds, I know it's, we've had it endlessly from politicians and from public health people and everything. The virus has got this little phospholipid, like fatty layer around it. And just good old fashioned soap and water breaks it down, disrupts it, kills your virus. It's incredibly straightforward. Unfortunately, with and the social distancing rules and masks are, would seem to be effective as well. The, again, the evidence isn't huge for these things. One of the difficulties with all of these things is that the evidence isn't huge at an individual level. But if you do it, so it's hard to sometimes to see the benefit to you as a person. But actually, but there is a small benefit. And there's unquestionably a really big benefit when the whole population does it. And that's when you really that's when you really see the kind of all the, the, the value of those kind of interventions. Um, yeah, and I think this is this idea of public health. I think it's why we've had so many issues in like the UK and the US where it's more of an individualistic culture and like me feeling I'm in a cage and I'm bashing against the cage. That's just me feeling like that. But my behavior, like you say, it's how a population behaves and the idea of public health. I've only really, really learned a lot about this year because of the pandemic. I've been reading a lot and trying to understand it because, as you say, it's at a much bigger level than the individual individual that you have to do these things and we've seen some of the greatest successes in public health when it's been put into the whole population and uh, th- that's what's 
so brilliant about public health. And yet that's what people are almost raging against, right? Yeah, there's, there's long been this tension with public health. It's always been a problem that sometimes it's very hard to quantify the benefit for an individual or the individual feels, as you say, they feel their freedom has been hampered. When you tot it up across the population, the effects can be quite remarkable and really beneficial. But that doesn't change this underlying kind of antagonism between the two. Vitamin D is an interesting one. I'm glad you mentioned it because I, I, I've been having a good look at the evidence around this a little bit recently. And I actually take a little, so I take a vitamin, so full disclosure, I take a multivitamin as well. But I have only started taking that in the last month or two. And that's partly because I've turned vegetarian a couple of months ago and decided there is the possibility of it's not impossible to become deficient in some vitamins. So I thought it was prudent, but I was particularly keen to make sure I got some vitamin D because vitamin d is a little bit harder to get if you don't eat meat it's there's plenty of it in oily fish in eggs breakfast cereals which have been fortified things like that and we definitely suffer for that in these northern latitudes at this time of year we get to this point in the year and normally we get vitamin d is a really cool vitamin because it's got this really weird mechanism that actually you go in the sun and then it, vitamin d gets produced in your skin which you then absorb which is it's really bizarre and who knows how that kind of thing evolved I, that's my fascinating i read the other day and i don't know if this is true that if you put mushrooms out in the sun they also generate more vitamin d I, and I, I need to look up the evidence for this so that's a, a highly i'm putting a big flag on that 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 needs to be checked <laughs> but i think <laughs> vitamin d is a really weird one but there does there's definitely lots of evidence that people are deficient in it or have less of it and we know people have less of it in the uh, in the winter months it, it's worth pointing out that people in the southern mediterranean regions in europe are also often deficient in vitamin D, probably for dietary reasons, rather than because, not because of the, obviously they've got plenty of sun. And people who cover themselves up, people who are spending a lot of time, that might be for cultural or religious reasons. Any of those things, I think it's probably prudent to take vitamin D. And at the moment, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, the government made vitamin D available to some of the more, for people who are more vulnerable and fall into that category. So on balance, it is possible to take too much of it. But if you just stick to the standard dose in a vitamin tablet, you probably seems if there's one thing you can do yourself, that might be something that's worth considering. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, what's going to be interesting is the reams of health data that's going to emerge over the next couple of years. And we'll find out some things <laughs> which is completely pointless and other things that we did were great. And so that's going to help with the next one, because inevitably, there will be something else. But I did want to talk about because in the Healthy Writer, we talked a lot about physical issues as it relates to working from home, because obviously, definitely had a lot of physical health issues in the past due to my posture and various things about sitting at desks for too many hours. And we had eye strain and back pain and I had shoulder pain. And I think that this has probably exploded now because a whole load more people are working from home for their day jobs and they might not have the right desk set up, all of these different things. So what are some of the common issues with working from home and some of the ways to combat them? Yeah. So we covered this obviously in a lot of detail in The Healthy Writer. And I was, I was of course, reading back through and I was really happy with some of the advice we offered in there about to people. Oh, good. I, think, <laughs> I was like, oh, that, that's actually, so I, kind of, I think I would always point people back towards it. There's a lot of information. I think the first thing is bad workstations, perhaps, is the most obvious disaster area. And that's going to be back pain, neck pain, you know, shoulder pain, RSI types, type two RSIs going on. There's all sorts of possibilities. And so that's that's really important. I think it's difficult to go into absolute detail, but if you pay some attention to how your workstation is set up, if you can, whether it's just about getting your chair height and your desk height 
and your monitor height or your computer height, even sticking a laptop on a riser with an external keyboard, which you can usually get for just a few pounds or dollars, that is really worthwhile. And I think those kind of changes can make a big difference. We probably can't run through them all now. One of the, th- the one tip I always have in my head that I remember if I start to get a sore back is I just put my feet on the floor. Because if once you curl your feet up behind you in the chair, I find that really that that leads me to a really slumped, curled up, bad posture. But actually just putting my feet on the floor makes an enormous difference to forcing me to sit up and engage my pelvis a little bit and straighten myself up. So that's one of the things I found incredibly useful. I think there's some, so in terms of kind of ergonomics, I would, that's one of the things I would always recommend. Be very aware of laptops from ergonomics. They are instruments of torture um, <laughs> in that regard. And it's really worthwhile if you're going to be at home for any length of time and you can manage to, and you can afford it, is to get yourself an external keyboard and a monitor and a mouse just to make things a bit better. I think some of the other things I would suggest are about being careful to try to partition home and work life a little bit as well. That can make, I think that's really useful in just in terms of it's very easy just to pop down back down to the computer and answer a few more emails or just fiddle, fiddle around with something and never really take a break from work. I have tried when I can to kind of set a limit and turn the computer off, close it down, go away and do something else. There's um, one colleague I know who did this used to be very careful about, though he worked at home, he would actually go out for a walk first thing in the morning. And it wasn't terribly far, but he regarded it as his morning commute. And then he would come back and sit at his desk. And then at the end of the day, he would do exactly the same, close everything down, go for a little walk. And that was his partition, a fixed line between home and work life. And I think after that, the main thing is I would just like try to take breaks. They're they're so important and get, get moving in those breaks get yourself some physical activity. So yeah, as I say, jump downstairs, put some music on, jump around, but even standing up and walking around make a huge difference. And what I've started trying to do is schedule meetings so that they last 25 minutes or 50 or 55 minutes. So that there's always a gap and you're not back to backing meetings, which, you know, that relentless Zoom day where you just flick from <laughs> one to the next is really exhausting. And so actually getting out of your chair, having a break, the Pomodoro method works really nicely for that as well. But getting some breaks and just getting yourself moving perhaps is one of the most useful things you can do. No, it's interesting. Still, we shared our work uh, station setups in the Healthy Writer and some pictures mm. and things. I'm standing up now. As Are you standing up? No, I'm sitting. Oh. I'm like, I haven't really got a stand-up desk option at home. I had one in my office. That, oh, okay, that's where we with... used to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm standing up. I all do all my interviews standing up for health also, but also just to get some energy into my voice. And I also still have a Swiss ball from when I do sit. And But since we did the book, I've made a few changes. So one big thing, a bit like but taking breaks. So the Apple Watch, I know uh, some people might not be able to afford some kind of smart device, but I just I am very bad at the Pomodoro, which is you set a timer and you only work 20 minutes and then take a five minutes break if people don't know. But what the uh, Apple Watch does is it, it vibrates on your wrist. So even if you ignore or press snooze on your alarm, this is and, and, and also I'm quite competitive, even with myself. And if you miss your standing and you're moving around, you don't get these rings. And so I've had it what for about just over a year now. And it's been brilliant for me because I obey it far more than I obeyed any kind of other external device. And I like to see all my rings closed every day, which means I get a move goal, I get an exercise goal, and I get a standing goal. So you basically have to move around at least once an hour. So I found that to be 
quite remarkable. These kind of devices and, and wearables are becoming more common, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And I think anything that get, anything that nudges you in the right direction, that's it's got it. It's a win, isn't it? The, the Pomodoro works for me. I actually find it, I find myself, I can get incredibly productive with the Pomodoro and I really enjoy the actual pattern of the working for a period and stopping for a few minutes. I get really into it. But any wearables, and I think particularly step counters are a really good one as well for any wearable. And you don't even necessarily need to have a, a device for that. You can, some phones will just record your steps sitting in your pocket, won't they? And you can get pedometers like for pennies, really, just which do nothing else but measure your steps for really just for, for very little. I think that can be incredibly useful as well. Just to, I'm always a little bit horrified when I am at home that, and it's one of the reasons that forces me out each day is that my step count is just miserable if I don't yeah. make an effort. It's almost <laughs> embarrassing. Um, and I'm just mortified if I just, if I look at it at lunchtime and it's just, you've barely broken a thousand. I feel just, I feel awful at that point. Yeah. And I think especially with knowing like in this pandemic time, I've done a variation of three different loops almost every day. And I know that each one is just over, it's between 10,000 and maybe 15,000 steps. So I know if I do one of those loops at least once a day, then it's going to get it in. But I I know you're super active. And the other thing I've been doing since we last talked is I got into weight training. So I, I did still have a lot of shoulder problems and I saw a specialist. It was basically postural from hunching over for so long <laughs> for so many years like 25 years at a keyboard and so basically he said the you, you just have to retrain your back muscles I'm like oh that's easy <laughs> so I've been working with a personal trainer twice a week now basically for and, and over the pandemic on zoom I've got all the I've got kettlebells and I've turned into yeah. a weightlifter which I'm actually really proud of and yeah. I'm I just love it really it makes me so happy like even if I don't feel like it after I've lifted some weights and done all of that I just feel so much better so I wanted to mention that because I think also I'm a 45 year old woman and doing weights is I I think a very good thing no I I think doing weights is much neglected and incredibly valuable it was something that I really probably since we last spoke actually I got into doing some weights as well I'm I'm a bit I've fallen off the wagon slightly at the moment um, with them and I've been doing more running, but I went through a period of doing them as well. And I, I did notice tremendous benefit in terms of my, all your problems, Joanna, are, they're always postural. They're all, they all seem to come back to postural yeah. with yourself. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fundamental problem. So I can't think of anything better than weights. It is actually the usual guidance for the government guidance on how much activity you should do. They always include a bit about weights. People always notice the how many minutes it is per week. And I can't remember what it is off the top of my head now the, that you should do. But they always say you should do at least a couple of sort of strength-based sessions every week as well. And that almost always gets forgotten. And it is incredibly useful. And it's more important as you get older as well, because all of us lose a bit of muscle strength as we get older. It goes downhill. But it's almost entirely, it's almost entirely recoverable by training. You'll never be as strong as you were in tw- when you were 20. But then if you didn't do any exercise when you were 20, there's every, you've got every chance of being stronger when you're 40, 50, 60, 70 than you were when you were 20. So I think it's an incredibly, yeah, it's, it's well worth. And it's the kind of thing that actually, if you can't get out for some reason, other lockdown, and there are lots of ways to do body weight exercises too. Mm. You don't have to have weights and things. There are a ton of resources on the internet for body weight exercises. If you can build the habit, gosh, yeah, that's just gold. 
Yeah, and I definitely feel that sort of endorphins going as well afterwards. So it's good for mental health as well. And I I realise that some people might see that as a big hurdle, like it sounds difficult. But again, Mm. as we talked about before, it's when you're driven by pain, (laughs) you're basically willing to take a chance on things. And my shoulder has been playing up for years on and off, and I've tried all kinds of things. And this is the thing that is uh, making it stronger and gets rid of my pain. And also my back pain, really interestingly, my body shape has changed more and my pain is reduced more by doing weights twice a week than it was with yoga. So I feel like yoga helped me with the sort of mental health and relaxation, but this strength training has really helped with managing my pain and changing my physical self. So I, I I feel like I've actually had quite a lot of physical education since we spoke last. It's, it's a, there's a ton of benefits for the way, think about weight training as well. It's the single best, I think it's the single best intervention for injury prevention as well. Mm. For almost any sport is weight training. I'd have to double check my evidence on that. Um, I have a lot of trepid, I had a lot of trepidation about doing weights because I didn't know what I was doing and I was very anxious about it. And I think that's something that's really put me off. And I would, it's getting over that initial hurdle is always very difficult with something new. But and at the end of the day, and, and, and of course, when you start doing it, you always feel you're completely rubbish. <laughs> you are and, rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you just can't do anything. And you're like, it's, it's, it can be quite hard not to get a bit demoralized. I do think it's one of those that benefits really from that kind of micro habit kind of approach where you just try and do it. Just, it's just trying to do a minimal amount and try to learn what you're doing. Treat it as a skill. It's not about how strong you are. It's mm. about learning the skill of how to lift weights properly, how to do body weight exercises properly. And if you if you think of it like that, that, that has helped me to actually make more of an effort to get into it, learn how to do stuff and really take advantage of the enormous benefits from it. And of course, now tons of personal trainers now work on Zoom. Yeah. And that's something that's changed a lot. It used to be, I used to go into the, the gym, but then once we went on to Zoom uh, and then we just do it in my home now. So I haven't gone back to the gym. <laughs> it's all just <laughs> been from home. So that's uh, a lot of things around health have changed in the pandemic. Actually, talking of the Apple Watch, Apple Fitness is about to launch. It, by the time this goes out, it will ha- be launched. And I also doing like online classes and stuff and Apple the Apple fitness will sync with your watch. So I'm pretty excited about that. I think we're going to see a a revolution in health, I think, out of the pandemic because so much money has been put into healthcare now. Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be some, I mean, the consequences are going to be far reaching. It's a remarkable period to live through. Um, And the way that we see all these things tilting in different directions, there's so much more scope to get involved in that kind of home-based exercise side of things. I just think that um, you're absolutely right. The weight training is an amazing thing to do I'd, I'd encourage anyone to do it and I think as you interestingly although we were saying about the I, I think I doing more weight training as men I don't have a I don't have a stand-up desk anymore but I haven't noticed any difference in my back pain at all I've probably had slightly less and I think that's probably related to the fact I've been doing this before I fell off the wagon and that <laughs> happened um, in terms of the weight training it was doing me an enormous amount of good Oh, that's great. Okay. Anything else that uh, you'd like to mention from the Healthy Writer or anything else that people might feel useful? I think the only thing I've, one thing that's been reported a lot in the media is about alcohol. And so I'm very aware that's something for people to pay close attention to. It's been, I've seen mixed messages though. I've seen some people are clearly drinking a bit less and taking advantage of lockdown to get healthy and the pandemic. There was definitely some positive, I think other people who've perhaps had more difficulties 
for whatever reason, perhaps their mental health has been struggling. Alcohol has been a problem as well. As somebody who spends all their clinical time looking after people who have terrible trouble with alcohol, I'm always very aware of it. So I would just encourage people to be really, it's one of those that keeping a diary is perhaps always a good way to go with that. It's more writing <laughs> and anything you can write down is always, writing's always the answer to everything, isn't it? Diarize, oh, how much, <laughs> diarize how much you're writing, how many weights you're doing, get a nice journal, write it all down with a beautiful pen and be a little bit careful with your alcohol. I think that's one to watch. Yeah. And I think half the time, we, you know, we did used to be like, oh, well, it's Friday, Friday night, whenever have a bottle of wine. And now it almost seems like you never know what day it is. <laughs> it's, oh, it's Tuesday. We'll have a bottle of wine because it feels like Friday. <laughs> Every day just feels the same. But yeah, obviously, I, I always say on the podcast, I, I like a drink or two. But obviously, you work with people with uh, addiction. So there are gradations of, of these things. And yeah, so I guess the overall sort of tip for people is to just come back into yourself and be mindful is anything hurting what's going on with your mental health your physical health and what can you do to make it better this year I guess yeah yeah that, that seems like a very nice summary I think there's just and I, and use writing as a tool to help you with that as well as the kind of it's the, in many ways it's the um output that lots of people are after in terms of the books or the articles or the blog posts or the content but actually it can be part of the process to help you as well. Mm, absolutely. So where can people find you and everything you do online? I, I think the best bet is trying to just to visit com. So that's E-U-A-N-L-A-W-S-O-N.com. And links there to Twitter, which I had left for two years and have come back to again. The Blokeology podcast, anything I'm writing, newsletters, bits and pieces, it's all there. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Ewan. That was great. Thank you, Joanna. So I hope you found the show useful today and that you have a plan in place to become a more healthy writer in 2021. And also remember that writing is therapeutic. So even if it never goes out into the world, whatever you're going through, try writing about it and it might help. I certainly have tons of journals, which I hope will never make it into the world, which are full of my angst and pain. So it really does help. So I also did mention Apple Plus Fitness in the interview and I have actually been using it now for a few weeks and I really love it. It syncs with my watch and I do the hit classes, the dance classes because I do like a bit of a boogie and the core classes and it just adds some great extra movement to my day and you know whatever works for you but I just wanted to give that a shout out because I'm really enjoying it. So next week, I'll be talking with Kate Champion about how it's never too late to achieve your goals, whether that's because of your age or your fear of technology or whether you feel like you're late to the indie author world, which I know that many people arriving now are going, oh my goodness, am I too late? But no, it is never too late. So definitely a mindset show next week. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.